Welcome to another Lost Ladies of Lit mini episode. I'm Amy Helms here with my co-host Kim Askew. Hey everyone. We're more than four months into the Hollywood writer's strike at the time this episode is first airing. We support the screenwriters in their fight, as well as the actors whose own union has more recently decided to go on strike. Yeah, I think there's a perception for many people, especially that don't live here in LA, that if you land a job in Hollywood, you've kind of made it, right? That there must be some big payout associated with selling a screenplay or writing for a TV show or getting cast on a show. Yeah, it's similar to the same misperception people have about published authors. Oh, you got a book deal. You can quit your day job. Amy and I know that that is not the case. <laughs> yeah, wrong. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> in, in most cases, <laughs> that's very wrong. Yeah. But yeah, some of the most depressing stories to come out of the Hollywood writer's strike are these first-person accounts from people who are in the writer's room or have sold pilots and screenplays. In some cases, Even showrunners or people who have won industry awards are coming out and describing, you know, what their existence is like and the fact that they're still basically broke. Yeah. And even for those who aren't living hand to mouth, they're still not being compensated fairly for their work. And they're constantly squeezed to produce more work for less money. And now many writers who were already struggling financially are making huge sacrifices by striking, earning no income at all. It's a tough time for sure for everyone in the industry affected by the strike. My heart goes out to them. All the way down the line. Everybody that works in the industry is suffering right now. But let's pivot to the topic of today's episode, which is lost lady screenwriters. Uh, Did you know, listeners, that women currently make up roughly 48% of TV writers and around 30% of film screenwriters? And those numbers sound pretty good. And they're up significantly from what they were around a decade ago. So that's a positive. But on the other hand, women still have a long way to go to reach the level of power they once held in Hollywood. That's right. I suspect most people don't think of women as having had very much power in Hollywood at all in the previous decades, especially not as writers. But it's true that more than half of all screenplays copyrighted between 1910 and 1930 were written by women. So they were the pioneers of screenwriting. They were the creative engines coming up with the scripts or scenarios, as they were then called, for the studios. And some of the top salaries in the film industry during this time went to women. They were written about in film fan magazines and were sort of celebrities in their own right. Yeah, and I never even realized that women writers were such power players in early Hollywood until we did an episode earlier this year on Eleanor Glynn, who was actually portrayed, by the way, by Jean Smart in the film Babylon. So our guest for that episode on Glynn was Hilary Hallett, who is an expert on women in early Hollywood. And in addition to writing a biography on Eleanor Glynn, she's also the author of a book called Go West, Young Women, The Rise of Early Hollywood. And that book details everything you could possibly want to know about women's involvement in the movie industry in the first few decades of the 20th century. When Hillary was on the show, we asked her about the heyday of female screenwriters in early Hollywood. So let's roll that clip. Writing for the screen was a craft very much pioneered by women. They ran the first scenario departments. They won the first Academy Awards. You know, it's like we forget all this, but the historical record, if you just dig a little, it's there still, the evidence of it. It was just forgotten, right? Like your lost ladies have lit. 
So one of the first reasons women had an unusual sort of flexibility and freedom in their roles was because the industry really emerged from the theater industry. And the theater industry had always been unusually tolerant, as we would say today, more gender bending attitudes. And so women stars were expected to kind of not be ladies, just to put it bluntly, right? And they did things like, you know, picking their roles and running their own companies and traveling them. That was a kind of theatrical tradition. And there was also the tradition of people in theater knowing more than just their one role, right? And so the film industry, literally all the early personnel is coming out of the theater. And so they come from this tradition that's more accepting also of homosexuality, right? That's more accepting of, you know, not ladylike women, that's more accepting of a kind of fluidity in the work roles. So you could, you know, start off as an actress, but then end up writing or start off as a writer and then end up directing or, you know, you get my picture. So the Hollywood film colony was basically filled with a bunch of freewheeling bohemians. And that gave women a lot more freedom to try their hand at various jobs within the film industry because people were chipping in on all levels, doing whatever needed to be done. And if you were capable of doing it, it didn't matter if you were a man or a woman. Right. And we should probably point out that these writers were predominantly white middle class women who were getting their foothold in the flickers, as movies were originally called. I kind of like flickers. Yeah. Yeah. I guess flicks. Yeah. Flicks that comes too. from that. Yeah. yeah. Um, it does seem, though, that scenario writing for silent films was actually kind of considered women's work, quote unquote. The film companies were well aware that women comprised a big part of their audience, and therefore they wanted stories that would appeal to their audience. So it was generally understood that women could better deliver romantic comedies and sentimental love stories, the sort of subject matter that would appeal to women moviegoers. And also, I thought this was very interesting. A lot of women did the screenwriting work because it was a job that could be done from home. So scenario writers didn't really need to be at the studio. They could remain in their domestic sphere, taking care of kids, what have you, and still churn out story ideas on the side. A lot of women screenwriters actually got their start entering contests for ideas and things like that. That's how they would kind of get brought into the business. Okay, this is all so fascinating. But then, of course, it makes you wonder why they were eventually edged out as screenwriters in the film industry. What happened? Yeah, right. It's like we we had all this power and then suddenly nothing. Um, so here's Hillary Hallett again to explain. No one thought this industry was going to be as successful as it was so quickly. And so in the early years, it just literally doesn't have the rules that become typical when you do become a big industrial corporate success, right? And so part of what happens is Hollywood does become a giant industrial corporate success, a cartel, you know, controlled by eight companies. It starts to look like all the other monopoly cartels, which means men are in charge, white men only, which means unions. They also rule out everybody but white men. Um, and so we talk about the good things of unions, but unions immediately, they make their roles white men only. Literally, it says that. And so, you know, there's that. It becomes a more typical corporate atmosphere. 
So we've already featured women in previous episodes of the show who were not only novelists, but who tried their hands writing screenplays in Hollywood. I'm thinking of Ursula Parrott and Winifred Eaton. Winifred headed up Universal Studios screenplay department for a time. And more recently, of course, Nora Ephron, right? Yeah. And also Tess Schlesinger, who yes, that's wrote right. the screenplay for A Tree Grows in Brooklyn. Mm-hmm. But for today's mini, we thought we'd highlight a few more names that are worth remembering. So you got to start with the big name, and that is Frances Marion. You absolutely cannot have this conversation without her. Yeah, she's a huge part of Hollywood history and the first woman to win an Oscar for Best Original Screenplay. So, Amy, why don't you fill us in on her? Okay. She was born Marion Benson Owens in San Francisco, and she did a lot of different things. She worked as a photographer's assistant and a commercial artist and then as a newspaper reporter before eventually ending up in Hollywood when her second husband got a job there. So she was interested in this nascent film industry, and she was willing to do any kind of work to get her foot in the door, like we talked about earlier, be it through small acting roles or designing posters or even painting portraits of the starlets. One thing that I love about her story is that it's through her friendships with some of these starlets that she begins to carve out her career. There's an actress by the name of Marie Dressler who started introducing Frances Marion around to her industry friends. And then one of her first jobs was as an assistant to the female film director, Lois Weber, which she was on the directing side of things, but interesting in her own right. But we don't have time to talk about her today. Um, And then, of course, Frances Marion is really known for her friendship with actress Mary Pickford. They would end up having a legendary partnership. Frances Marion wrote a number of scenarios that Mary Pickford would star in, including Rebecca of Sunnybrook Farm and The Poor Little Rich Girl. And after that film, by the way, the famous players Lasky Corporation signed Frances Marion to a $50,000 contract to be Pickford's official scenario writer. Wow. And that made her one of the highest paid writers in Hollywood. If you're into historical fiction and want to read more about the friendship between Frances Marion and Mary Pickford, there's a book called The Girls in the Picture by Melanie Benjamin. Benjamin also wrote The Swans of Fifth Avenue, which is great. So if you like that book or you just love reading about Hollywood history, check out The Girls in the Picture. I have not read those. I'm so excited now to read them. You know what I have from when I was a kid? A book called The Moving Picture Girls. And it's like written in the 1920s and it's set in the film industry by a woman. It's kind of like um, almost like young adult novel style. Very innocent and sweet. I have to loan it to you. I think um, Frances Marion actually wrote an account of her time in early Hollywood also. That just reminds me of that. It was called Off With Their Heads, A Serio Comic Tale of Hollywood. Ooh, I love the title. Yeah. (laughs) It looks like it's out of print, but I did find it on the Wayback Machine. Uh, So you can go online and read it if you're interested. Okay, cool. We'll link to all these for sure. Um, Frances Marion also adapted the novel The Scarlet Letter, as well as a film called The Wind, based on a novel by Lost Lady of Lit Dorothy Scarborough. Actress Lillian Gish starred in both of those critically acclaimed films of the silent era. She also wrote Greta Garbo's first talkie, Anna Christie. And as we mentioned earlier, Frances Marion won the first Oscar. She actually won back-to-back Oscars in 1931 and 1932 for The Big House and The Champ. 
And incidentally, those films were very macho movies. So we talked earlier about the studios wanting women writers who could write for women. But the first one, The Big House, was about a prison drama. And The Champ is about an alcoholic boxer. So she can clearly do more than just chick flicks, <laughs> you know? Yeah. yeah. Um, all told, she wrote more than 300 scenarios. Wow, that's a lot. I mean, you got to remember, too, scenarios didn't really have dialogue. Oh, yeah, that's They true. would just write the captions in between the filming, but it, they were still writing the narrative yeah. arc of what the story should be. And also, yeah. you know, but yeah, also, I'd love to just read a quick quote Francis Marion gave to Photoplay magazine in 1926. It's about the process of adapting a classic novel for film, like The Scarlet Letter. She said, we tear it down, we reconstruct it, we make the woman dominate, and the male character as passive as every woman would like to have her husband. We end up with a splendid vehicle for a woman star and the cyclone-wrecked story. <laughs> <laughs> I love so it. I love that. That's great. Oh my gosh, that's great. All right, so let's talk about our next screenwriter now. Um, her name is Anita Luce. What can you tell us about her? Um, I actually don't even want to say too much about Anita Luce because she's probably somebody we could devote an entire episode to. Ooh. She seems like a real character just in terms of her personality, starting with her claim that she was only a teenager when she first started writing for the movies. That's not quite true. She was probably around 24, but she was lying to make herself seem younger than she actually was. Right. So that old trick. Um, <laughs> she started submitting scenarios to Biograph Studios in New York. And one of her first scenarios to actually be made into a film was called The New York Hat. And it was actually Frances Marion who took the idea and developed it further to be put into production. Mary Pickford, no surprise, stars in this one also. It's about a young woman who receives a ludicrously over-the-top hat and the gossip and drama and comedy that ensues from that. Yes. So after this movie, director D.W. Griffith recruited Luce to come to Hollywood, where he enlisted her to write the intertitles, a.k.a. the captions, for his epic drama Intolerance. And say what you want to say about D.W. Griffith. There's a lot that's not great, but I will say that he hired a lot of women writers. So give him some credit for that. After working on Intolerance, Luce switched gears and started writing comedies for Douglas Fairbanks, which made her almost as much of a celebrity as he was, and it earned her the nickname the Soubrette of Satire. I love that nickname. So, meanwhile, most of us have heard of the film Gentlemen Prefer Blondes. It was made famous by the film adaptation starring Marilyn Monroe. And that movie is based on a book that was written by Anita Luce in 1925. Edith Wharton actually called the book The Great American Novel, and it was an instant bestseller. I have not read that book. I'm very intrigued. No. I think maybe we need to do an episode on that. Edith Wharton called it The Great American Novel. I think we could do a um, Gentlemen Prefer Blondes episode for yeah, sure. Let's do it. And that episode. book is definitely another jazz age novel that explores the hedonism of the flapper lifestyle a la... Ursula Parrott's ex-wife. Mm -hmm. Luce later went on to write another screenplay of a movie I think we all know and love, 
the adaptation of Claire Booth Luce's play The Women, which premiered in 1939. And that is such a good movie. Yeah, that's such a great movie. I mean, there's so much we could say about Luce. Her story is long and fascinating. So um, rather than get any more into it, let's just move on to the next screenwriter. And um, we'll circle back to Luce for a full episode at some point. So The next woman I want to talk about was a real serious power player. By the time she was 35, June Mathis was the highest paid executive in Hollywood as the first female executive for MGM. And in terms of her writing, her most famous films were The Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse and Blood and Sand, which she wrote in 1921 and 1922. She had entered a screenwriting contest when she was young, and even though she didn't win the contest, her entry that she submitted was so impressive that it got her job offers. So after moving to Hollywood, she quickly moves up the ranks, and she becomes the head of Metro Studios Scenario Department, one of the first female heads of any film department. And she's also, incidentally, the person who discovered Rudolph Valentino. Whoa. Yeah, she's the one that suggested, hey, I think we should cast this guy in the movie I wrote, Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse. And they did. And it ended up being one of the highest grossing films to date at that point, earning $4.5 million, which I had to go back and check that because I was like, wait, $4.5 million in today's money? Or no, $4.5 million at the time. Whoa. Um, She was also involved in the production of the adaptation of Eleanor Glynn's novel, Three Weeks, that we did an episode on. And this is pretty cool. She also helped give Buster Keaton his first starring comic role. So she was obviously huge. Yeah, yeah. Another thing I saw about her is that she had a big influence on shaping the format of the screenplay, how it looks, basically. She was one of the first writers to include stage directions and physical settings in her work. And that actually surprised me because you had that in plays going back to Shakespeare, you know? So it's hard to believe that in movies, they didn't actually put the stage direction, but who knows? Yeah. Interestingly, also, she died very young in her 30s of a sudden heart attack. And she's actually buried next to Rudolph Valentino And here's the story with that. Um, He had died unexpectedly the year before. And it was June Mathis who offered up a spot in her family vault at the Hollywood Forever Cemetery for Rudolph to be buried in. Um, And then she just died like the very next year. So they're buried side by side. You and I know the Hollywood Forever Cemetery. Yeah, and Rudy Valentino's grave. Oh, do you know where yeah. it is there? Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. It. Yeah. All right. It's like a because famous there's spot. a whole story. Yeah. And there's a whole story about the mysterious lady in black who oh, for yeah. a long time, for many years, there was this mysterious lady apparently who would leave a, a rose by his grave right. every year. Yeah. Lady in black. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So anyway, if you visit Rudolph Valentino's grave, look to the, I don't know if it's the right or the left, but you will see June Mathis uh, right next to him. Honestly, there are so many early Hollywood screenwriters we could talk about, but we just don't have the time here. I mean, everyone go read Hillary Hallett's Go West Young Women to discover more. Yeah, there's so many. It will blow your mind when you realize how prolific women were in early Hollywood and how much power they had. And good luck to all of the screenwriters out there. Hopefully um, the strike ends soon. 
Uh, (laughs) We're ready for for it to end. Um, So that's all for today's episode. Join us next week for another full-length episode. And if you are enjoying our podcast, don't forget to leave us a rating and review wherever you listen. We really appreciate it. Our theme song was recorded by Jenny Malone, and our logo was designed by Harriet Grant. Lost Ladies of Lit is produced by Kim Askew and Amy Hollins.